0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this morning we'll be looking at verses 16 through 21. This is God's word. It is revealed truth from heaven. It'll transform your life. It will guide and direct you. It will lead you to the only true Savior. Please give it your full attention. Beginning in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A few days ago I was reading an article about family estrangement. And it defined that term, family estrangement, as a person who has cut off all contact with close family members for an extended period of time. In that article, it said that one recent study determined that one in four Americans has an estranged relationship long term with someone from their close family. One in four. And another researcher said in that article that there is, quote, a silent epidemic of family breakups going on in our society. A silent epidemic of family breakups. If we've been paying attention, I guess it shouldn't surprise us. As we've been hearing so much in recent years about the deep divisions in our society, in our country, in our culture, We are increasingly, as a culture, divided over questions of religion, politics, morals, and values. And as those divides deepen, we can only expect that this is going to become a greater problem, the breakup, not just of families, but every other close relationship. We were created to be in loving, harmonious relationships. We were created for that. The Bible teaches that the true God, the creator God, the God of the universe is a trinity, is the term we apply to it. He's three persons and one God. There's great great mystery to there. Something that our small human brains cannot comprehend, but the scripture reveal it to be true. That God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in loving and harmonious relationship from eternity past to eternity future. That's the God who created us. That's the God whom we serve. And the scriptures teach that we are made in his image. What that means is that we are made for relationship. We need relationship at the very core of our being. We need to be in community, to be in fellowship with others. And particularly, we need a family. We were created to need a family. Broken relationships in our families are due to the fall, what the Bible calls the first sin, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. In the context of perfection, they sinned against God, they rebelled against God, they were cast out, and broken relationships began. Even their first two children had a terribly broken relationship that ended in murder. These broken relationships that all of us have experienced to one degree or another are like open wounds on our psyche. They're like a low-grade fever in our souls that we carry around everywhere we go and we somehow learn to live with. That's one reason Christmas is such a difficult season for so many. Because that pain of broken relationships with the people that we love and that we're close to gets accentuated, it gets intensified, it gets amplified. The irony of it is that Christmas is all about peace. That's what we're celebrating is peace. How do we view the brokenness that it's so close around us in light of the peace that we talk about in this season. Last week, we talked about the unexpected coming of the Messiah, the unexpected arrival of the promised one, the Savior. We talked about how many in how many ways he was not what anybody was looking for. We called it the humiliation of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, Added to his divine nature, a human nature, he came into our midst, but he did not come in a way in which anybody would have expected. He left the glory of heaven to be born as an infant, a helpless infant. The circumstances of his conception were, from the perception of his neighbors and family members, shameful circumstances, although it wasn't what they thought it was. His parents were nobodies from nowhere. He was born in, in a small town and raised in a small insignificant town. He was born in an animal stable and laid in a feeding trough. And those that were first, the first witnesses to his birth were the lowly shepherds which had no respect in society. That was last week, we looked at his unexpected arrival. The only evidence of the divinity and the glory of the eternal Son of God that was seen at the first coming of Christ was when the angels appeared to those shepherds. They said, I bring you good news. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That would sound good to people in the first century. They were looking for a Savior. I don't know that Americans are looking for a Savior that much. Anybody asked you how you're doing, your knee-jerk reaction is, I'm fine. You're fine, maybe relative to where you've been or where you're going or the people around you, but in the eyes of a holy God, you're not fine. The relationships in your life are not fine. We Americans need a Savior, but we find it hard to admit to that. This week, I want to talk about the unexpected purpose of Christ's coming. His arrival was unexpected, but it's the purpose of his coming that people did not understand and people still don't understand to such a great degree. Why did he come, and why did he come in the way in which he came? The angels described the impact of his coming in their message to the shepherds. They said, "On on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He came to bring peace. I'll tell you right now, that is your deepest need in life. You need peace. You need the peace that we celebrate at Christmas. Every one of you. I hope that all of you know it. But let's talk about that peace. Because again, it's not what the world was expecting. It's not what the world was looking for. We often stress that what the Bible calls peace is different from how the world defines peace. The world defines peace in terms of what it's not. The world defines peace as the absence of something. Peace is the absence of war. Peace is the absence of personal conflict. Peace is the absence of stress. Or peace is the absence of suffering. That's how the world defines peace, but that's not how the Bible defines peace. The term shalom in the Old Testament is what's carried over into the New Covenant. And that idea of shalom is a very positive thing, an incredibly positive thing. It's not the absence, it's not only the absence of all these bad things. It's the intense, comprehensive presence of incredible blessings from God. Wholeness. Contentment. Physical, psychological, and spiritual health. And yes, harmonious relationships. It's basically Eden restored. That's what peace looks like. Eden restored. But many that were looking for a Messiah, looking for a deliverer, looking for a savior in the first century, were looking for someone who would come and bring external peace. They wanted the defeat of Israel's enemies, especially the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. They wanted the elimination of crime and disorder. They wanted the end of disease and physical suffering. They wanted economic prosperity. That's what they were looking for. That's what they thought the Messiah would bring. That's the kind of salvation they looked for. And that's what people are still looking for today all around us. We look for it from our presidents, and they disappoint us deeply. We look for it from our congressmen, and they disappoint us. We look for it from our doctors and our scientists, and they disappoint us. We look for it from our psychologists and our counselors, and they disappoint us. But Jesus didn't come to bring that kind of peace. And to those who looked for that kind of peace in his coming... He said to them, according to Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. What did he mean by that? The angel said he came to bring peace. And yet he stood before the public and said, I have not come to bring peace. What he meant was, I didn't come to bring the kind of peace you're looking for. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, that those who would commit their lives to following him would find out that that actually is going to increase the alienation that you have with others in your life. He actually goes on to describe it in terms of family estrangement, broken families. Listen to what he said. That his coming would set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother And then he goes on to say that a a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Because he didn't come to bring external peace, he came to bring internal peace. Matter of fact, his first coming, he is saying, would increase the problem of family estrangement, not remove it. That's because the first time he came, 2,000 years ago, he came to bring to take away a far more important estrangement and alienation from our lives. And that's the enmity between us as sinners and a holy God who created us. That's the estrangement that he came to deal with. That's the place in life where he came to bring peace, the peace that you need first and foremost. That's what he's talking about that Paul, the apostle Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5 reconciliation. And his focus is on reconciliation between God and man. You cannot have inner peace if you do not have peace with God. You cannot have inner peace unless you have peace with God. That's where it begins and that's what Paul's talking about. He tells us three things about this reconciliation in this passage. First of all, reconciliation between a sinner and a holy God is a work of God alone. Reconciliation, according to Paul, here in 2 Corinthians 5, is a work of God alone. If you look back at verses 14 and 15, I didn't read those verses, but if you look there, he brings up the the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he mentions its purpose there. But then he goes on in verses 16 and 17 that we did read, and he says, we can't understand who Jesus is let alone understand what his death meant, unless God makes us a new creation. A new creation, a new creature. As Jesus put it, when he talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You cannot know this peace with God unless, first of all, you are born again. Paul talks about a time, you notice here, he talks about a time in his life When he regarded Jesus Christ according to the flesh, when Paul uses that word flesh, he means our old nature, the nature we were born with, the sinful nature, the self-centered, prideful nature that we're born with, that we have until God changes us. And he says when he was in the flesh, he was a religious leader. He was one of the great leaders of of the Jews. He was a religious leader, but he was still seeing only in the flesh. And he said he regarded Jesus Christ in the flesh. But he says he sees him that way no longer. Paul once saw Jesus Christ as a false teacher. The greatest condemnation in scripture is toward those who are false teachers, those who lead people astray from the Lord. And Paul thought that Jesus Christ was a false teacher, a false Messiah, who was leading people astray. And therefore, he dedicated his life to persecuting, to imprisoning, to causing the followers of Jesus Christ to suffer. That's when he saw Jesus Christ in the flesh. But then Jesus Christ invaded his life. Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus. And he blinded him so that he could see. He blinded him physically, but he opened his eyes spiritually to see who Jesus Christ really was. And to begin to understand why Jesus came the way he came and died the way he died and was raised from the dead. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 7, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, those who have been recreated, those who have been made new creations, who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. That's where we were before Christ intervened and invaded our lives. We were hostile to God. Now, we probably wouldn't have said that. We wouldn't have labeled it that way. We wouldn't have understood ourselves that way. But as God looked at us, we were hostile to him, the one true God. But it's interesting that Scripture, and especially here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is making the point that that wasn't our main problem. That's not our primary problem. That's not our foundational problem in life, that we are hostile to God in in the flesh, in our old nature. That's not the main thing that needs to be fixed. The prophet Isaiah tells us what our main primary problem is in Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 and 2 where it says behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, God is angry at you. Not a popular message these days, but he is angry at us when we are only in the flesh, before we are newly created and born again. God is angry at us. The wrath of God is upon us because of our sins. Every way in our thought, word, and deed in which we have not measured up to the perfect law of God, the perfect righteousness of God is more offensive to a holy God than we can understand. He cannot look upon sin. He certainly cannot have fellowship with sin. And his wrath remains upon us while we are in the flesh outside of Christ. There are churches where you can go and hear a wrathless Christianity and a wrathless gospel where they will talk about a God who loves you no matter what, and he's just waiting for you to stop being mad at him and and stop being indifferent to him and come and serve him. But that's not the God of the scriptures. Our hostility towards God is a big problem. Don't get me wrong. It's a huge problem, but it's not our primary problem. It's not what needs to be fixed first. What needs to be fixed first is God's anger towards us, God's wrath towards us. And that is the work of God alone to deal with his anger and wrath towards us. It's his work alone to remove it. That's what Paul's saying in verse 18 when he says, all this is from God. All of this, totally universal statement, all of this is from God. Looking back, all of what? Back in verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 17, he's talking about the work of making us a new creation. We can't create ourselves. We can't create spiritual life within us. God has to do that. It's just like the original creation of the universe. He spoke and and it happened. God has to create that new life in you. And so all of this is from God. He's partly talking about what he's just mentioned about the new creation that happens in the heart of a sinner so that somebody who's in the flesh now becomes in the spirit so that they can see and hear and believe the truth. But the second thing that he's talking about that is the work of God alone is the important part in verses 18 and 19. It's that reality that we now see as new creations, born-again believers, where he says twice, God has reconciled us to himself that's the phrase I want you to remember today God has reconciled us to himself it's his work and his work alone he has done all that needs to be done in order for us to be at peace with our creator how if it's God's work how did it happen how did God do this well, he goes, Paul goes on to say that this reconciliation is only in Jesus Christ. In verses 18 and 19, when he says that twice that God has reconciled us to himself, he says it two ways. He has reconciled us to himself with, or, um, through Christ, and then he says it again in Christ. Through Christ and in Christ, that's the only way that we can be at peace with God. Paul defines the work of Christ in saving us in that most important way in verse 19 by saying that God in Christ is not counting their trespasses against them. He pardoned us. He did not hold us accountable for the sins that we've committed. It's like a presidential pardon. It's a one-time legal statement that clears the record completely, not only takes every offense off the record, but on the record it says that you've obeyed in every way. It's a one-time declaration, legal declaration before the law of God, where God pronounces you not only forgiven and clean in his sight, but righteous, wearing the righteousness of Christ. That's what he's talking about in verse 19. But he hasn't quite gotten to the core of how God reconciled us to himself yet. He does that in verse 21. Because that's where God himself takes care of his wrath and anger towards us because of our sin. He says in verse 21, for our sake, don't miss that first phrase, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. There is the gospel of God in a very pithy statement. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for our sake, so that we might become The righteousness of God. It's that incomprehensible work of the Son of God on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that he would come and live a perfect life in our midst and then offer up that perfect human life in in union with his divine nature, he offered up his perfect human life as a sacrifice and shed his blood for our sins on the cross. And God poured out his wrath upon him. That verse we read from Isaiah 59 said that that our sins have caused God to turn his back upon us. To hide his face from us. That's what happened to Jesus at the cross. Because that's what we deserved in the anger and wrath of God. And God the Father poured out his wrath upon his own son. The only human being who didn't deserve to suffer at all for sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. As Paul puts it succinctly in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's why Jesus' last words as he breathed his last on the cross were it is finished. The penalty has been paid, the wrath has been poured out. There is not a single drop of God's wrath left in the cup of his wrath. And that brings us to that celebratory passage of Romans chapter 5 where Paul brings it all together for us. He says in Romans 5 verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him By him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Just think about that phrase in light of all we've been saying. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. By the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received Reconciliation. You see, it's a work of God. It's a work that only the Son of God could accomplish. And it was done because of the love of God the Father for you and for me. It's a gift. And so the third point that Paul makes at the end of the passage we read earlier is that now this message has been entrusted to us. Reconciliation with God is our message to the world. Don't lose sight of that. We're not here to work for social justice. We're not here to help people get better lives. We're not here to serve the poor. All those things are good, but we are here. Don't ever lose sight of the mission, the job description we've been given. It's to take this message of reconciliation in Christ to the world that they might know the life that we have been received. In verse 18, Paul says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, he says, he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We are offering an astounding gift to the world. If only they would believe us. What we offer to them is incredible. We offer to them forgiveness. I remember reading one psychologist's article written by a psychologist where he said if he could walk in to uh, mental institutions across the country and convince the people in those institutions that they are forgiven, 80% of them would walk out healed. He's recognizing the fact that some people have mental illnesses that are actually illnesses that are actually physical causes, but many of them, and that's true for all of us, many of our cycle, we're all psychologically broken. We're all somewhere between You know, Adolf Hitler and Jesus Christ. We're somewhere on the spectrum. We're all psychologically broken. But a lot of that brokenness is due to an inability to either forgive others or to be forgiven. We offer forgiveness from our Creator, the most important forgiveness in life. We offer inner peace. People out there are looking in every dark corner for peace. And we offer it to them with this message of reconciliation. We offer to them a spiritual family in the church where you can be truly loved, not because of who you are or what you do, but because you also believe in this message of reconciliation. And we offer eternal life in a perfect universe before the very face of God who will love you as an eternal father. That's what we offer to the world. That's the message of reconciliation. You know, we're rightly skeptical when somebody offers us something extremely valuable for nothing. My spam filter, my, my spam box, and my email gets filled every week with, somebody, with you know, three or four people offering me incredible free gifts or, you know, just tell Venmo that you, you'll accept this $500 gift. You know, I get told this all week long but you know, I know and you know it's, it's a scam. It's to get something from me. We are offering the gospel. It is the message of reconciliation. It's not a self-improvement plan. It's not a religious ritual or commitment. It's a message. It's a very simple statement, but get your mind around that. The gospel is a message. Paul defines for us what that message is. It's a very simple message. You can memorize it this morning. Here's what the gospel is according to the Apostle Paul. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to the five hundred. That's the gospel. Paul's defined it for us. It's a very simple message. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And those who will believe and trust in him will be given all these wonderful Eternal gifts, free of charge, a total gift. That's our message. In verse 20, Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. Actually, he calls himself an ambassador for Christ. And I think primarily he's referring to himself and the other apostles. Because the 12, the, the 12 uh, you know, the 11 plus Paul is the 12th they were given special and unique authority as representatives of Jesus Christ to actually speak on his behalf and to write the New Testament on his behalf. So that's that's a unique type of ambassador. But I do believe it's entirely appropriate and consistent with the rest of the teaching of Paul and the rest of the New Testament that we, in a secondary sense, are to take that message revealed through the prophets and apostles to the world as ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ and we take his word and the message of his saving work to the world. Ambassadors are appointed and authorized by a higher authority to represent that higher authority and to speak for that higher authority. As Paul says in verse 20, God is making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. God has done it all. He's done everything that needs to be done. Go tell the world. Be reconciled to God. Receive the gift. It's that simple. But think about it. An earthly ambassador representing the United States would be fired. An earthly ambassador representing some other countries in the world might be put to death if they misrepresented the authority that sent them. Or if they changed the message, they added to or took away from or changed the message it was given to them to take to the other party, they would be severely punished. And that's why Paul talks about the gospel in this way. In Galatians 1, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. There is only one gospel. It's revealed in the scriptures. It's Jesus died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Believe in him and repent and you will be saved. That's the one gospel. There is no other gospel. The gospel is not how to be a better person. The gospel is not how to make big changes out there in the world. The gospel is not how to experience the supernatural. The gospel is not how to find prosperity and health in this life. The gospel is Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. That's the gospel. It's a simple message. Don't ever let it be corrupted in your life or in the message you share with others. I pray the ambassador's prayer every time I step into the pulpit or any time I get to speak the word of God to anybody, believer or unbeliever. I pray the ambassador's prayer. This is the ambassador's prayer. Lord, help me to represent Jesus Christ well and help me to communicate his message accurately. Christmas is about peace on earth. It's about a peace that will pass all understanding a peace that if you're, if you're in the flesh, you'll never understand it. But if God has made you a new creation, if He's opened your spiritual eyes and opened your spiritual ears and changed your, your heart so that you are able to hear and understand, you're going to see that this is a peace that passes all understanding that will transform your life. God sent us a Savior. And that Savior was not a doctor, that Savior was not a scientist, that Savior was not a king or a president. That savior was a carpenter who lived a perfect life, shared his father's message accurately and perfectly, and then offered up his life as a sacrifice in your place and died for you so that your sins might be forgiven, so that God would not be angry at you any longer, that you would be forgiven and given the gift of perfect righteousness. So that you would be adopted into God's family, and that God would be your loving heavenly Father from this day on until all eternity, and that you would experience eternity in his presence in a perfect universe. That's the kind of Savior He sent. Let me conclude by just reading a nice summary of all that we've talked about from Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul says there: For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Praise God for his great gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the peace that Christ gives. We have sought peace in our lives, our prior lives in the flesh, in so many places, in so many ways, in so many relationships. But it's only in Christ that we have found perfect peace. And that is the peace that we needed with you as our creator and our judge Lord, thank you for what Christ has done. Thank you for opening our eyes to see it. Thank you for opening our ears. Thank you for making us alive, for giving us hearts that desire to know you and to believe the truth. And Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that continually works in us to conform us to the image, the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Help us, continue to help us in that way. And Lord, help us to be good ambassadors for Christ, to represent both his person and his message as well as we can in this fallen form. Lord, enable us and forgive us when we fall short. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.